we're going to jump around a little bit this evening because we're in a jump around kind of mood right now. We've been doing a series in the book of Daniel. Uh, but we've also, alongside of that, been doing kind of a second series, kind of interspersed throughout Daniel, on the mission and the vision, <coughs> pardon me, the mission and the vision of our church. Uh, and so we're kind of interspersing this series in the midst of Daniel. Daniel, the subtitle of the Daniel series, is a survival guide for the believer. And really, what we want to do is we want to also help you to understand how you take these pointers, these encouragement part, these, these, these practical bits in the book of Daniel, and connect them to real life as a follower of Jesus. All of us are called to be followers of Jesus. And so this is a series, uh, this series on Follow Jesus is about really the mission of our church. The mission of our church is simply this, that we would become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who choose to impact their world. And just a few weeks ago, uh, Ian spoke on the idea of community and how it's discovered in the midst of this mission statement. And Barry, uh, just a couple of weeks ago as well, spoke about servanthood and serving others and how that kind of weaves itself into the midst of our sermon series and our midst of our mission statement. That mission statement, becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. Uh, be, can we just give a hand for this awesome guy here? Thank you so much. Just amazing. I said the same thing this morning in a different way for Ian and there was a much heartier clap, but we're keeping you humble here, buddy. This is good. Thank you. Um, uh, becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus. It implies there's a process in it. It implies it takes time. You're becoming. It just doesn't happen. There's a process in it. There's a journey in it. And so if you feel like you're still working out what it means to follow Jesus, you're in good company. Congratulations, you're normal. It's a fully devoted follower of Jesus, which implies that you can be less than fully devoted, that you can be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. Not that that's the best, most mature place to be, but it's part of the process. And so wherever you are on this, this, this linear journey of becoming a fully devoted, mature follower of Jesus, a disciple really of Jesus, my hope tonight is that I can weave together some practical helps and habits for you to cultivate that as we go through Daniel and look at uh, the survival guide for the church. So that's kind of how this all fits together if you're wondering why aren't we in the book of Daniel tonight. Uh, we'll be back for that next week. We're also going to jump around a little bit tonight in scripture. So Luke chapter 11 is one of the places we're going to land. First uh, John chapter 2 is another place we'll spend a few moments. And John chapter 4. So if you want to follow along, you can kind of thumbnail those pages in. We live in a following culture. All of us in this room are followers. And you say, not me, I'm not a follower. I blaze my own trail. I'm unique. I'm an individual. I don't follow anybody. You follow plenty. I just have to pick up your phone and find out who you follow. On Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. You like things all the time. I follow this person. I follow that person. You follow people on your music apps, on your computer. I like to listen to that band. I like to listen to this band. I'm going to go see that band. We're a 
culture of followers. Some of you are like, I'm not into the social media. I don't do the Facebook. Uh, you're still following people. Uh, maybe you dial up a, a certain radio program on a regular basis when you're in your car and you follow that particular radio show. Maybe you do that with your favorite pastor and you dial up a particular pastor on a regular basis and listen to them. You're a follower of that pastor. Uh, perhaps you subscribe to a newspaper or a particular magazine. You're a follower, a subscriber to that particular magazine. We all follow. We all subscribe. We all give our attention to many, many things on a regular basis. We're follower culture. And we consume it as we follow it. We just consume this and consume that, and we're really fickle as we do it. I don't like that, unsubscribe. Ah, I don't like this one, unfollow. No like there. How we're constantly changing as a fickle follower culture. There's low cost to it. It's just a click. It's just a subscription. There's low investment in it. There's low emotional tie to it. It comes and it goes. That's not the following that Jesus had in mind when he calls us to become his followers. Uh, there's the stories all throughout the Gospels, the stories about Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's sprinkled with calls to follow and comments about following. I'll just randomly throw out a few. If you want to write them down and read them in context later, you can feel free to do that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. Large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and Jerusalem. They're following him. Matthew 8, 1. In no particular order these are coming out. When Jesus came down from the mountain, and we'll talk about why he was in the mountain and what he was doing up there in just a little bit. Large crowds followed him. Matthew 12, 15. Jesus withdrew from the certain place and many followed him and he healed them. There was kind of a reward for following. Sounds like Save on Foods, more rewards card. I've subscribed to that as well. We're followers. Um, John 6, 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Mark 2, 15. Uh, he was with many tax collectors and, and sinners who were dining with Jesus and his disciples. There were many of them, and they were following him. Followers. Matthew 20, verse 36. 34, pardon me. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight, and they followed him, which is probably a lot easier when they had their sight than when they were blind. Uh, Matthew 4, 18 to 20. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon casting his nets in the sea, and his brother, Andrew. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, not just of fish. So immediately they left their nets. They left their jobs, what they were good at, what they were secure in, what was predictable, what was safe for them, and they followed Jesus. Following is a little bit different in the context of following Jesus than it is in the world that we live in. It's sprinkled all over the scriptures. That's what we want to talk today about, about being disciples, about how to follow Jesus well that we might become mature disciples, fully 
devoted followers of Jesus. That's where we want to go today. Um, let's just pray for a moment on that. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us to yourself as your word is opened up. God, as we talk about what it is to be a follower of you, Lord, that you would prick us and, and, and point out in our hearts those places where we're weak that we need to lift the bar. Those places where we are ignoring areas of our discipleship and following that we need to change to bring in line with your call to us to be followers. God, may we understand what it means to have a following of you that is costly and that is more than fickle, that is more than just of the moment, but is deep and life-changing. Holy Spirit, would you, in this time we have together, shape our hearts and our souls to be more than what we were when we walked in. In your name we pray, amen. 1 John 2.6. I first discovered it, at least it says in the margin of my Bible, I first discovered this particular passage and kind of read it with an understanding in August of 1991 when I discovered something that I go, whoa, never read that before. I often underline it and throw a date there so that when I come back to it later and go, whoa, that's amazing. I get convicted because I actually read it a long time ago and I should have had it far before now. But August 13th, 1991, I read, at least to write it down for the first time, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. And here John's talking about what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be one who calls ourselves a disciple. It says, but if anyone obeys his word. So obedience is going to play into this. So right there is part of the cost of following Jesus. It means we have to obey someone other than us. And right away for some of it, it's like, I, I want to be the center of my universe. I want it all to be about me. My experience trumps others' experience, wisdom, or even God's truth. But right off the bat, John turns the tables on that and says, if anyone obeys God's word, God's love will truly be made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. And no doubt this is what caught my attention so many years ago. I want to be in Jesus. I want to I live my life in the midst of God's presence and his influence. I want to be a follower. I want to be a disciple. How can I know? Back in high school um, chemistry class, I don't know how many of you are in that, are glad you're not in that anymore, or maybe are in that and wish you weren't. Uh, but chemistry class, for me, wasn't a highlight of my high school years. I think I maybe grade 12 got a 60-something in chemistry class. I did much better in other classes, math and other things like this. Phys ed, 97 every semester. It was awesome. Pull that GPA up. Uh, and, but not so much for chemistry. But in chemistry, we had litmus tests. So you got an acid or a base, and you have this little strip of paper that's been treated with something, and you take it and you dip it in, your acid, or your, and it tells you how acidic or non-acidic the particular liquid is. It's a litmus test. It lets you tell what is in the cup and how potent it is. Well, this is kind of a litmus test for if I'm in Christ. All right, what does it say? 
If anyone obeys his word, God's love is made truly complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. This is a litmus test. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did, which presents a bit of a problem because you and I aren't hanging out with Jesus, so we have no idea how he walked. Did he walk with a little bit of a swagger? I'm coming for you, Satan. You know, did he walk with a confidence? Did he have a limp? I, I, we don't know how he walked. How are we supposed to walk as Jesus walked? Well, of course, it's not about literally how he physically walked. This is saying, how did he live out his life? As he walked through his days, how did he live? This is a lifestyle statement. This is how we know we are in Jesus, how we are followers of him, fully devoted. Whoever claims to live in him must live a lifestyle after him that reflects him. Our life ought to look like Jesus' life if we're his followers. Okay? And it was, this isn't about salvation. This is about sanctification. Now that I've been saved, aligning my life with the model of Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of my faith. He's perfecting my faith as I come into stride with his life. So then we jump over to John, chapter 4. And Jesus there is speaking. It just happens just after this incident with the woman at the well. Some of you may know that story. His disciples have gone off to get some food. And Jesus has had this encounter with this lady. He shared about her life. He's basically read her mail and told her everything about her life. And she's kind of blown away. And he reveals who he is, the Messiah. And there's this moment of Packed and life changed for her. So then the disciples come back and they urge the rabbi, you know, you should eat something. We went, we got food. You've got to be starving. Eat something. But in verse 32, Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Pardon me? You got a stash? You got a food stash? You got a Snickers in your pocket? What are you talking about? But again, much like the walking, this is not literal in the sense of physical food. God's talking about a nourishment for his soul that more than satisfies. And he says this, my food, verse 34 of chapter 4 of John, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me, do the will of God, which implies he is learning about what it is, and to finish his work. To join God in accomplishing and fulfilling his mission. How does Jesus walk? What's the lifestyle that he lives? He lives a lifestyle of understanding the will of the Father. And a lifestyle then of joining God in what he's doing so that he can live it out. This is what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. One who seeks out the will of God and then joins God in accomplishing that each and every day. Swen, uh, when he was sharing, mentioned that he'll get up in the morning and he'll spend time uh, studying God's word and praying with his roommates often. And then he heads out and maybe does some uh, learning or maybe just some wandering around town, eyes wide open, ears perked, with a prayer in his heart saying, God, 
what are you up to in my proximity today, and can I join you in it? And maybe a person will be pointed out for him to go talk to, and he just feels that prompting in his spirit because he's been learning to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. He's been learning what it is to understand what God's up to and join him in it. It's a process. He's been practicing day in and day out for months. He'll go up and he'll engage with people and start talking with them. And God's activity and his heart for that place at that time is join him with Swen and Swen brings it to fruition through the power of Jesus for his glory. It's not about Swen, but he opens himself up as a tool for God to use in that moment out of what? Obedience. And we come full circle back to 1 John chapter 2. And so if those are the two things we need to do, know the will of God and then join him in accomplishing it, that's what it means to be a disciple, then uh, I want to give you six habits tonight that you can begin to cultivate in your life to move you toward that end, to becoming more mature in your discipleship as a follower of Jesus, investing in it. It's going to cost you. It's going to take commitment. Sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable, but as you give yourself to it, things change. I mentioned math class. I did a lot better in than chemistry, and it, it's true. Uh, math class had practical stuff in it. Math class even had stuff as a youth pastor I've had to use in the past. Algebraic formulas. I've used those in youth ministry. I mean, I remember one time when I was in Abbotsford and I had to figure out how long the cable I would have to buy to connect to the back wall of the gymnasium in order to build a zip line all the way on the stage in the gym. I mean, you gotta have zip lines for youth groups and youth retreats, so we needed to figure out how long that would be and I knew that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And so I put it on all my digits and I figured out how long that cable needed to be to go from the back of the balcony to the front of the stage so the guy could hutch himself to a harness in the middle of a youth retreat, fly down from the stage, whoa, right on the stage. It was going to be epic and smoke and mirrors. I don't know what else. It's going to be great. And I, I figured it out. Now, I, I, I did miscalculate. Uh, <laughs> from the back wall to the front wall is great, but the formula takes it all the way to the floor. So I had about 30 feet extra airline cable stuff that kind of went back and forth along the back wall of the gym. <laughs> until it's scared to use it all up. Kind of, but it looked good at the end. Another formula that you may or may not have learned in math class was R times T equals D. Now the second service this morning, the 11 o'clock crew, several of them knew what, that, what all those letters stood for. And in the first service, I had some people shouting out what those letters stand for. Hearken back, if you will, with me to algebra class in grade 9 or 10. R times T equals D. What does the R stand for? Does anybody remember? Rate. And all the high school students and going, oh yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Yeah. Taking notes now on your sermon, Dan. Okay. T is time. Rate times time equals distance. Practically, uh, I go out for my morning run. I won't tell you how fast I run, lest I become even more pathetic in your eyes. Um, I, out running, and I, I have a particular pace I run each kilometer in. And that's my rate of running. Well, depending how long I run, so if I run a kilometer in, you know, 
five minutes. Uh, uh, and I'll be running a kilometer in five minutes. And if I run for 20 minutes, the distance I travel is? You can work on that at home and text your answer in later. Rate times time equals distance. I want to suggest to you tonight that these habits done regularly over time will develop you in your maturity in Christ. What are the habits? Well, they're simply this. Number one, reading your Bible. Uh, Jesus, he lived to know the will of the Father. God has given us this special revelation in the Bible of his heart, his mission, what he's like, his character, his, his desire for his people, what it means to walk in freedom and hope and healing and life. And so we, we create a regular rhythm of reading scripture. Uh, we've got some incredible resources in our church community. Uh, David Evans, who is an older gentleman who often attends in the morning services, he's written a year of devotions. Every 365, I think he's actually got 366 in case there's a leap year. And, and you just kind of read every day. There's a Bible verse and a thought on that to begin your day with. Uh, you think you can go to the church website and find it on there. Um, daily Bread is just a booklet of daily Bible. There's resources. What would happen if you had this daily rhythm of reading and beginning to learn what God's will would be? Just starting to bank it up, to memorize it, and just soak in that truth. Imagine how you'd be able to recall stuff on the go on a regular basis. And for some of you, you've got a regular rhythm. But for others of you, it's very haphazard and you really wrestle with this. Can I encourage you to begin again developing a habit? There's a habit that uh, Jesus encourages us to have, he obey, commands us to have in Scripture, and that's fasting. This is not number two. This is just considering this Bible reading idea again. And, and when I fast for a day or two from time to time, I'll go without meals and instead take that time for prayer. And so I set aside the things of this world to cultivate the things of spiritual disciplines in my life, the things of heaven. And I'll find myself, even though I'm not eating on that particular day, to walk into my house, walk into the kitchen, and crack the fridge open. Just out of habit, muscle memory. I just go to the, the cupboard and open it, and what's in here to eat? Oh yeah, I'm not eating. It's just, it's something I, I hate it. It's just like, oh, am I that bad? I'm just like drawn to the fridge. It speaks to me. That chocolate cake is calling my name. Um, and, and we go, it's this muscle memory in us. We just do it. And what if that became our daily rhythm spiritually in our Bible reading? That we would begin to know what God's heart is and what his will is by regularly taking, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Guy, have you read this book? Not recently. I went to church the other week. If the only thing you're doing is taking in a little bit spoon-fed from the front on Sunday, man, you are going to be like dying throughout the week spiritually. What would happen if that would become a regular? How would that move you towards becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus? It's about moving to maturity. Here's the second one. Second one's prayer. Exodus 33, 7 to 11 is a fantastic story about a guy named Moses. Moses is uh, the champion, the, the leader of the Israelite people. 
And he's led them out of Egypt and is moving towards the promised land, but they're in the middle of a desert. They've set up this tent in the desert called the Tent of Meeting, where Moses would go to the tent and meet with God on a regular basis. It says the way man meets with his friend. So this place of, of meeting, of interaction. And it says that the, the God would manifest himself in this pillar of cloud and come down and that cloud would settle itself on the tent. At nighttime, it was a pillar of fire, which was probably really important that Moses only went during the day because, man, they'd be going through tents if he kept going at night. <laughs> Gone. Get a new tent. He goes down, the pillar of cloud comes, and, and he meets with God. It's agenda-driven. I mean, the implication is, is that he's got an agenda. He's meeting with, he's got a meeting with God. And, and sometimes our prayer is like meetings. Uh, God, I've got this request. I want to pray for this person. I want to thank you for this and this. I want to praise you for that. And so it's agenda-driven. It's a meeting like we would go to in our business, perhaps. I mean, it's still a man meeting with his friend, so it's still the, you know, personal, and pl- but it's a me- there's an agenda with it. And then it says that Moses, when he was done that meeting, would leave the tent, but Joshua, his young aide, Exodus 33, 7-11, Joshua, his young aide, would stay in the tent. And he doesn't talk anymore about any meeting. That, he would just kind of soak, he would just spend time in God's presence. And sometimes our relationship with Jesus has to be agenda-driven. We're speaking to him and he's speaking to us and we're listening and we're actively listening and interacting and bringing his word in to clarify what we think we're hearing so we know whether it's consistent with the word of God or whether it's just last night's pizza giving us bad gas and we just, God is this you, that's discernment, right? And, and so there's, it's interactive and it's praying and it's back and forth. But sometimes it's just like Psalm 46.10 says, just to be still. Just to be still in the presence of God. And that's what Joshua did. In my marriage, there are times when Charlene and I will be talking and visiting about ideas and sharing information about our day and and stories. And other times, just sit across the table and stare into one another's eyes. Ah. Okay, so then I usually interrupt and say pass the something. Um, But it's for a moment. Prayer, both intimate and interactive. Where is that in your life? Where's the measure of that for your spiritual discipline development and your discipleship? That could change everything if you would just increase that for some of us in the room tonight. Here's the third one. And the next three kind of are grouped together as, uh, as kind of almost under the title of community, living life together stuff. And the first one is this, confession and repentance. Some of us are really good at one or the other. Some of us are really good at confession. Forgive me for this. God, uh, forgive me for this individual. We're, we're good at confession, but the whole repentance, confess, but the whole repentance, repentance means turning away from it and walking away from it and not repeating it. We're not good at the repentance part. Forgive me for having bad thoughts about you and thinking you're a jerk. So we confess that to them, but we don't actually repent, turn away, and stop doing it. Repentance and confession go hand in hand. And for some of us, that's a real weak spot in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus. And we need to up the bar in that. 
We need to live in confession, repentance. I love there's two scriptures at least, if not, I mean, there's lots, but two that I want to highlight tonight, and you can write down and read later if you like, around confession and repentance. And the first is in 1 John. It's 1-9, chapter 1-9 in 1 John. And it says this. It says that we're to confess our sins to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's an incredible promise and a hope for healing and reconciliation with God. But there's another verse as well that kind of stands alongside of that in, in John, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16. And it says this, that we are to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another. It says the, there's an, effectual, um, an effective prayer of a person who is walking in righteousness with God accomplishes much. And sometimes confession just to the Lord, one-on-one is great, but we're in these cyclical sin patterns, and it's like we, we sin, and then we confess and repent, but then we end up going right back and doing it again, and we're just caught in this cycle of sin. It's a habit, this sin and repentance, and, and, and we just need someone else to insert themselves in this that we can talk to about it and, and ask to, to, to challenge us on it and just talk it through and have them pray for us. Confession and repentance. For some of us, it's the low, it's the low mark in our discipleship. And we need to lift that up. Uh, here's the fourth thing. It's fellowship. It's not about rings. It's not about Middle Earth stuff. Okay? Some churches have fellowship halls. They actually devote rooms to this. We have a fellowship hall and a fellowship time. And really what that means is drinking coffee and tea while eating those sandwiches that they cut the crusts off and they fill with egg salad. And it's really what they mean is we're going to have some munchies and some drinks and do some small talk. That's not fellowship. That's munchies and drinks with small talk. Fellowship biblically is shown to us in places like Acts 2.42. And that paragraph where Jesus, um, pardon me, that paragraph where Luke tells us about the four pillars of the church the one that is the study of the apostles' teaching, uh, hearing about God in what he's spoken through his word and what's currently happening, God on the move then in scripture and now real time. It's, it's sharing food. I love that one of the pillars of the first church was eating together. Yay, potlucks. Um, you know, uh, eating with one another and sharing life over a meal with one another and occasionally sitting quietly and staring. I love you. If you're with your spouse, nobody else though. Um, that's weird. Uh, and, and there's some Lord's Supper in there and some communion in there and stuff like that as well. And, and then the other, the next one is, is fellowship. And what fellowship is, is it's an intimate sharing of our real needs in our hearts with other believers so that they can respond in practical ways, either in physical ways. It says a little bit later in that paragraph that people would sell all their possessions and so they could help and none of them would be in need. That's practically ministering to people's needs. Or it's in prayer for one another. And the last pillar in, of the early church was, was mission and praying for mission, praying for people to come to the Lord. And so this idea of fellowship, deep sharing with one another what's going on. And one of the ways that that's best accomplished in our church community here is through growth groups. And there's some women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies as well, but the primary one is growth groups. And if you're not connected to some kind of a regular body of believers who gather outside of Sunday for regular rhythm, you are missing out 
on becoming more fully matured in your following of Jesus. Because there's something about community. The idea of living life alone and Christianity don't actually coincide. It's like a body of believers. That's how the Bible describes it. And, and just like it says, I don't need you hand. I don't need you foot. I really prefer innies and outies. I don't need you belly button. Um, we can't say that to body parts. It just, it all works together. And in the same way, the body of Christ can't remove what? You can't live in isolation and be part of a body. It doesn't work. The Adam's family hand walking around. That's not real life in the body of Christ. It's attached to the body. And so are you connected to community where you can experience fellowship? Um, confession, fellowship. And the next one is uh, accountability. It's, it's meeting with another believer or believers who can ask you the hard questions about life, about what you're tempted in, and encourage you and pray for you. Um, it's kind of like fellowship. It's kind of like confession and repentance. It's all kind of in the same area. And so people who can, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul, the author of that particular book in the Bible, tells us this, that there's no temptation that's not common to all people. Now, and basically what he's saying is that every temptation you will come upon is a temptation that everyone in every time has had to face. There's nothing new under the sun as far as temptation comes in the base root bottom line. I mean, it may manifest itself in different experiences, but at the same time, it's a common root temptation. There's only a few of them. And so, John, or Paul is saying, there's no sin, there's no temptation that's not common to everyone. In all time, in all places. He says, but God's faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But in every temptation, there is a way out. And some of that is about body coming together and challenging you and keeping you accountable. It's about vulnerability. There's cost of vulnerability and humiliation even in following Jesus. You can't be fickle in the kingdom of God that way. Here's the last one. And it's this, serving. And Barry did a whole sermon on it. If you missed it, go back and re-listen to it. It was brilliant. How do we express the gifts God's given to us within the body of Christ, first and foremost, and then outside of the body of believers as well in our community? We serve in-house, across the street, and around the world. There's three spheres to that. And that comes everything from our giving of our time, our talents, our finances, our resources, our wisdom. How are you serving in all three of those spheres, from the inside and moving towards the fringes of our world. Six things, six challenges for you to evaluate. Now here's my final question for you. And if you've got nothing else, would you connect the dots on this tonight? What's your next step? Which of those six is your low rung? Which of those six is your weakest link? Because we need to raise the bar in those as we are becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
which is the one that you need to raise the bar on in the weeks ahead? Which is it? Luke's fol- uh, Jesus' followers in Luke 11, where we started, came to him. And they asked him a question. This question about discipleship. They saw him praying, and they came to him and said this, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Now, they knew prayer. They knew how to pray. They were Jewish. They had been taught the traditional prayers. They probably prayed in a regular rhythm throughout any given day. But they'd noticed something different in the prayers of Jesus. Much like John's disciples had noticed in John, a different way of praying, something more intimate, something more direct. We want to learn that's our low bar. That's our weak link. That's our next step, Jesus. Would you teach us about prayer? This habit. We want to be better at it. So Jesus goes on to teach them the Lord's Prayer and some important lessons in the midst of that. What's your low bar? What's your next step? Disciples ask that question of Jesus repeatedly, all the time, because there's always a next step in our scripture intake and rhythms, in our prayer life, in our fellowship with other believers, in our accountability with one another, in where and how we're serving, using our resources. God, I pray that um, you would help us to determine what each of our next steps is. God, that you would help to identify in our lives those places that are a weak link where we have to up the bar. God, where we have to move to a place of greater maturing in you. And Lord, help us when we feel convicted about things not to rail against them, not to assert our own self and uncomfortableness instead of embracing those things and letting you shape and form us. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. In your name we pray. Amen.